Let's pray together just now. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we're starting a new series of studies that will take us right through until Easter time. In one sense it's a new series, but in another sense it's a continuation of something that we've been doing for quite a while here. I looked up my, my notes, my records. In January of 2005, we started uh, looking at Genesis chapter 1 and had a, a series in the beginning uh, part of the Bible there. Uh, then the next year, I think, we did some stuff on the life of Abraham in our evening services. Over the next couple of years, we looked at, at Jacob and then Joseph. And in the autumn of 2009, we, we began to look at the book of Exodus in our morning services. Uh, we, we spent a number of weeks looking at that incredible uh, story of how God rescued his people out of Egypt and, and set them on the road to the promised land. As we've journeyed through those, those early chapters of the Bible, I think we've learned much about the character of God and we've learned much about ourselves, about human, human beings. And we've learned about the length that God has gone to, to, to be with us and to be in a relationship with us. When we pick up the story in Exodus 19, we, we sort of just dropped, dropped in there in, in the middle of something that had, had been running. Let me remind you a little bit of what's been going on. It's been a big three months for over a million ex-slaves who, who were set free from, uh, from Egypt in the Exodus. They had been ill-treated, you remember, there for years. Uh, they had slave masters in, in the land of Egypt. And when they were finally set free, they, they were overjoyed. But almost instantly, their, their joy evaporated because they, they soon were terrified again. Pharaoh, who had set them free one moment, had changed his mind and decided to pursue them with an army. God's plan, though, that these people would, would move on and would leave Egypt couldn't be thwarted. So you'll remember how God rescued them at the Red Sea. And as recent as a few months ago, in the lives of these people, all of this had played itself out. They had seen the God whom they only vaguely knew, the God of, of their forefathers centuries before, had suddenly become a reality to them. He had become their, their saving, rescuing God. God didn't just rescue them from Egypt. That's, in, in one sense, that's the very dramatic part of the story. But it's one thing to take a, a million people out of captivity. It's another thing to get them across a Middle Eastern desert. It took an awful lot of, of intervention on God's part to provide for his people as they went Thirst was a frightening reality for them. Hunger, never far away. There were times for these people when the good old days of slavery seemed, uh, seemed like a good option compared to what they were living through in the desert. But God, again, didn't let his people down. He, he went before them, he cared for them, and he provided for them. He gave them manna and quail, you'll remember, to eat when, when they were thirsty. 
He, he brought water out of a rock for them to drink. So all of this stuff, their rescue from Egypt, the, the provision that God gave them on their way through the desert, all of this is absolutely fresh in the memory of these people. God's not a, a far-off fairy tale for them. He, he's the one they've got to know who's acted on their behalf right here and right now. And I want you to, to remember that and understand it because all of this comes before God ever spoke one word of law to his people. All that he'd done, his rescue and his provision, all comes before. When we get to Exodus 19, I think we're in one of the most beautiful passages in the whole of the Bible. Here God comes to his people and he expands on the promises that he'd made to, to Abraham 600 years before. You may not be massively familiar with this, but 600 years before, God chose one man and he said, through your family, I'm going to bless you with a huge family of descendants and through them, I'm going to bless the whole world. That was the, the gist of God's promise to Abraham. But here he develops that because the promise to Abraham is coming true. The huge family 600 years later exists. It's these people rescued from Egypt on their way to the promised land. And look, look at verse 4, the beautiful message that God gives Moses for this newborn nation. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Couldn't get a better metaphor for what's happened for these people in the last few months. Rescued on eagles' wings. Think of a mother eagle, a fierce predator. You wouldn't want to get between her and her young. That speaks a little of the reality of the judgment that fell on Egypt, who'd been oppressing God's children, his people. But think too of how the, the mother carries her young, keeps them safe, and, and on her huge wings, carries them away from any danger. That's what God's just done for these people of his. He's gathered them up, taken them out of a place of hardship toward a place of, of joy and of safety. Look then what he says to them in verse 5. He promises to make them a treasured possession. Somewhere along the line in the church we've found this hard to understand. When you're God's people, you're the apple of his eye. You're, you're his treasured possession. You, you warm his heart. That's how God thinks of us. Moses says that there will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These people are going to be God's special ambassadors. They're going to live on the earth demonstrating what, what God is like and what it's like to be his people. All of this wonderful stuff God says to them before he gives the law. I've told you that, that really our series, with an introduction today, the next 10 weeks are going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. And I wonder what kind of a, an emotional response you have to that. Uh, I wonder 
how you feel about learning about God's laws that he's asked us to live by. It seems to me there probably hasn't been a time in human history when such an idea would be less attractive. In our sophisticated Western culture, these stark, thou shalt commands seem simplistic and crude and difficult to defend. In a permissive culture like ours, there really is only one commandment. Love yourself and do as you please. Ours is a relativistic culture where there are no moral absolutes. And and your neighbor might say to you, well, you believe the Ten Commandments far ahead. That's grand. As long as you don't expect me or anyone else to. These are just a private wee idea of your own. So in a permissive relativistic culture such as ours, I'd be naive to assume that that even in a gathering like this, that everyone here is convinced about the validity of the Ten Commandments in the modern world. But there's another problem. Even within the the church, those people who, who want to follow Jesus Christ, there are those who don't take the commandments seriously. Because there's a way of thinking that says the Ten Commandments don't apply to Christian people. When Jesus came, he rescued us from a life of obedience to the law. With Jesus, we're now free to do as we please. I want to have a quick look at that common misunderstanding and, and help see if we can remember why the Ten Commandments do still apply today. There's a lot of law in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. If if you want to flick through that sometime, you'll you'll see what I'm saying. There, There are an awful lot of various kinds of laws. But in the Bible, there's a clear distinction made between everything else that follows and and these Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments, by the way, you read them in Exodus 20, and also later on they're repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Those two those two records of the Ten Commandments stand out from everything else that surrounds them. Let me explain why, why that is the case. One difference is that the Ten Commandments, we're told, were spoken by the mouth of God and written by his finger. So all the other laws in the Levitical system, we're told, were, were mediated, were given through Moses. But the Ten Commandments, we're told, come direct from God. The people heard his voice as he spoke these. The second difference is that all of all the many laws given to Moses, it's only the Ten Commandments that were written on tablets of stone. Uh, you may remember that from the stories you've learned in Sunday school. Those laws were recorded on two tablets of stone. They were kept in the Ark of the Covenant And the ark itself was kept at the center of the tent of meeting at this point in Israel's history. That was a place regarded as so holy that only the high priest could go there and only once a year. So these tablets with these commandments are placed in that place. And that symbolizes how special and how holy these commandments were in in the life of God's people. They were at the very center. They were like nothing else that God had spoken to his people. 
The third difference between the Ten Commandments and all the other Levitical laws is more of a legal nature. The Levitical laws were mostly what a lawyer would call case law. So they describe what you do in a case like this. If such and such happens, you do this. Even if you went to a lawyer nowadays to get a complex matter looked at, it may be that one thing that they would do is is to look up uh, legal volumes and then quote to you some case law that's arisen around that particular query or subject that that you're interested in. The, The way we create law, a large part of it is by cases, by precedents established through previous cases. The Ten Commandments aren't like that. They're not case law. They are firmly and clearly established by God, absolute laws that don't apply to any particular situation, any particular time, or any culture. They're universally applicable. They have no sell-by date. So when we begin to understand the Ten Commandments as, as an absolute law given by God, given by his own voice, written in his own hand, we begin to understand that they're, they're different than all the other laws that, that are surround. They, they stand and they still stand for us today in our generation and our culture. Folks, none of that is the most important thing that I want to say today as I introduce you to the Ten Commandments. The most important thing for us to take away from here today is that these commandments are grounded in God's love. A previous minister of mine, David Searle, he put it like this. God had chosen this ragamuffin band of fugitives from the concentration camps of Egypt Why, we'll never know, except that inexplicably, he loved them. Here's a people that God has chosen. There's nothing good about them. If you've forgotten about that, read Genesis again. Remember what the early fathers of of Israel were like. There's nothing good about them. They were probably worse in many regards than many other people. But God in his grace chose them. And remember how how their rescue from Egypt came about. God confronted the power of Pharaoh. His judgment fell on Egypt. But each of his people was invited to, to sacrifice a lamb, to shed its blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their home, that they might live and not die. God loved these people. He had done everything possible to rescue them, to provide for them. These were his people. And they were that before. Have you got that? They were that before he gave them the Ten Commandments. Before he gave them the law. Once we understand that, then we are no longer thinking... These are the commands that I need to obey if I want to be one of God's people. No, never again do we think that. We think differently now about these commandments. They're a gracious gift to them. Look at at verse 2 in chapter 20. We're going to go there next week. 
Just as God's about to speak the first commandment, he says to his people, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If you take that away, if you take that one verse away, all of a sudden you have a a list of laws here, bang, ten laws. But if you put that back in, you have a father coming to his children saying, look at what we've been through together. Look at what I've already done for you. Look at how I've demonstrated my love for you. Now let me share with you how to live. Once we begin to see this, then the Ten Commandments just just move from one extreme to the other. Instead of being a curse, something that's all about diminishing your life, making my life smaller and less enjoyable, suddenly this is an invitation to a beautiful and a full and a rich life. If you read the Old Testament law in its entirety, you'd find a recurring phrase there. It says, do this and live at various points along the way. That doesn't mean do this and earn life. Because that's what the the Pharisees of Jesus' day taught. That's what the legalists of our day might still want to teach. If you do this, then you'll be right with God. No, it's never been that way. Do this and live means do this and experience life. Enjoy the fullest and richest life, the life that God wants to give us. So folks, while while everything that we have said about the the absolute authority of these commandments is, is valid, I think it's only a part of the story. These commands stand as as a gracious invitation to a life that's safe and good and blessed. Here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, I've tried to, to teach you that, that life is all about following Jesus Christ. Becoming his disciples, his apprentices, his followers. Folks, if it's true that, that life is about following Jesus Christ, then the Ten Commandments will play an important, an important role for us. Jesus loved the law. He loved the whole of God's law. As a young Jewish teenage boy, he would have been drilled in this. He would have known large chunks of the Old Testament by heart. He would have known that passage from Psalm 119. He would have prayed often, Open my eyes so that I might see the wonderful things in your law. Jesus loved the law. It's true to say that Jesus came to set us free from a way of life where we thought it was all about obeying laws. That's absolutely the case. But Jesus never once undermined a single small part of God's law. And he certainly never suggested that the Ten Commandments were no longer valid. Here's what he said, Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. 
Whenever Jesus was asked one day by the lawyers of his time, what's the most important of the commandments? His answer is is basically a summary of the Ten Commandments. He said, love God. And we're going to see over the next ten weeks that the first four commandments deal with how we love God. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to see how the next six, the remaining six commandments deal with our love for our neighbor. So when Jesus is asked, what's life all about? What's the most important law? He points to these ten commandments. Jesus expected his disciples to follow him as he obeyed the law. He told them in in John chapter 14, we can read it there, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So obeying the law, learning what it is, learning in God's power to live it, is a response of love to Jesus. If you come across a Christian who says, I love Jesus, but I'm not that interested in, in the law. Then we ask him, what Jesus do you love? It's not the Jesus of Scripture. The one who says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. As I was trying to think of how to finish this morning and how to invite you into this series of teaching on God's law, I thought I'd better do it with a an open-ended question, something for you to take away and to, to mull over this week. Before we come back next Sunday, between now and then, I want you to think about this. Is God good? And will living the life that he's called me to be the best life? Is God good? Will living life his way be the best life? It's quite a big question. Goes right to the heart. Right to the very heart of what it is to be created by God and working out whether we want to live for his glory or for our own. Is God good? Is his way the best? Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, for, for many of us, for most of our lives, the idea that you have authority over us the idea that we should live in a way that you uh, prescribe and, and show. Lord, we have, we have struggled with that idea and many of us have rejected it. Lord, thank you for your grace that always comes first. Thank you that you've rescued us. Thank you that you're longing to bless us and lead us into a good life. Teach us now to trust you with the depths of our hearts, to believe that you are good and that life with you really is best. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.